So we're in a series called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. The title is taken from a Marcus Borg book that for me and, and I know many of you has been transformative in our journeys. Um, before we jump in, by the way, Jesus is my favorite thing to talk about. Um, you know, theology and all that, I find it fascinating, but talking about this person uh, named Jesus is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Before we jump in though, I, and this may be only funny to me, and for that reason alone, it's worth doing. Um, and that is, I, I happened to be on social media this week looking, and I started seeing these pictures of Mark Wahlberg. Apparently, he went on the Today Show, I believe it was, to talk about, he's doing this thing with uh, this app through, I think the Catholic Church, it's called, I forget what the name of the app, but he's doing like this 40-day prayer thing during the season of Lent, which we are in, the season of Lent, period leading up to Easter. But I love that the Today Show called it Mark Wahlberg's 40-day challenge. <laughs> like, uh, what? I'm sorry, we'll no longer be calling it Lent. It is no longer Lent. Just scrub that from your vocabulary. It is now Mark Wahlberg's 40-day challenge. Jesus in the desert for 40 days? It's no longer the temptation of Jesus. It's Jesus underwent Mark Wahlberg's 40-day challenge. I just thought that was... What a time to be alive. Can we just, can we just, can we just say... Wow, just, okay. So uh, we, where we've been in this series uh, over the last couple of weeks, we began the first week, and if you missed them, you can check them out on YouTube or subscribe to our podcast. Um, and you could also like rate and review the podcast. That would help other people find it. Unless you hate it, then please don't. Um, only if it's a five-star experience for you. Um, we talked about sources the first week, like how do we know about the historical Jesus? How do we know about this person who lived? Uh, and we looked at sources from outside of the Bible and sources inside of the Bible. Last week we talked about, we sort of asked who was the historical Jesus? And we talked about the context in which Jesus lived, the second temple Jewish context and the Roman context. And then I offered at the end of that, just sort of a brief sketch over who, who I thought Jesus was and what he was doing at this particular time in history. Uh, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be pulling those, the, that sketch apart and spending some time on each part of it. This week, we're gonna talk about how Jesus saw God. Um, because I think it's an important question. How did Jesus understand God? What was Jesus' vision of God? What did he think God was like? If you were to be able to sit down with Jesus and say, Jesus, in your understanding, what was God's character like? Who is this, this God that we're talking about? Um, and here's why we're spending time on that. It's really simple. I think everything Jesus did, the whole kingdom of God movement, his teaching, his meals, his healings and exercise, all of those things go back to the vision Jesus had of God. He understood God to be a certain kind of reality. And because he saw God that way, it shaped and influenced how he showed up in the world, what he did, who he welcomed, who he included, what he challenged. All of that was wrapped up in Jesus' understanding of God. Marcus Borg in another book called The God We Never Knew said this, our images of God matter. Just as how we conceptualize God affects what we think the Christian life is about, so do our images of God. Ideas which include both concepts and images are like families, they have relationships. How we image God shapes not only what we think God is like, but also what we think the Christian life is about. Right? So, so how we see God, what we think God is like, really ends up shaping dramatically what we think it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a person of faith in this tradition in the world. Rob Bell put it like this, 
We shape our God and then our God shapes us. So how we end up understanding God is vitally and crucially important because it will, almost, I almost said infect, and it's true. It can infect everything, it will infect everything else we do say and believe theologically, spiritually, all of that. And the truth is, in the Christian tradition at least, in, in the Christian tradition I grew up in, which is main, mainly for me growing up, it was uh, evangelical and then non-denominational evangelical. That tradition for me has never spent a whole lot of time reflecting on how we see God and how that vision of God has shaped how we've shown up in the world. We just sort of have gone on autopilot. We've assumed that we're right, that we know everything about God, that God actually, um, Anne Lamott said that you can tell that you've sort of created your own, your own image of God when God hates all the same people you do. You know, is, isn't, it just, isn't it just interesting that, God, that our vision of God ends up being against all the same people we're against? That, that somehow we shape our God and then our God shapes us. Always, I've always said, I, when I first started preaching, it was during, in the Southern Baptist world, it was during the Reformed resurgence, which is like Calvinism. How many of you know what Calvinism is? How many of you don't? Blessed and highly favored. <laughs> Not gonna explain it to you right now. It's, it's junk theology, you don't need it. But I always used to say, you know, Calvinists had this idea that only, only a certain number of people are chosen by God to, to go to heaven or whatever, be saved. And I always used to say, I would buy that if I met somebody who wasn't chosen who bought it. Like, I'm out, and I know I'm out because God didn't pick me. It's like middle school, uh, you know, dodgeball. I, I got picked last, or I didn't get picked at all. Um, so this image of God really, 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 really matters. Um, and so if our image of God is hostile... If our image of God is vindictive and vengeful, if our image of God is looking for any reason at all that God can possibly find to condemn us to an eternity of suffering, then it is more than likely that we'll end up embodying that same hostility toward other human beings, right? When you have a narrow, small, angry God, you will go into the world with a narrow, small, angry agenda, and you will be looking to get rid of everybody who doesn't fit that agenda, our judgments will be swift and harsh. Those we deem as outsiders will become targets of our vitriol and anger. We will become hostile because we want to conform to the image we have of God. This is what God is like. This is who we need to be. Our God is hostile. We are gonna be hostile and we're gonna call that hostility love. Because if you think you're, if your God is angry and vengeful, the most loving thing you can do is try to warn everybody about that angry, vengeful God and you're probably gonna end up doing it in the same way your God has done it. If we have an image of God that is indifferent and cold, unmoved and unaffected by the suffering and struggle of the world, and there's a theological term for this, it's called impassibility, the idea that God is impassable. And impassibility, it really comes from like Aristotle and Plato. It's this idea, it means that God cannot in any way, shape, or form suffer or really feel emotion at all. Because if God is perfect, then nothing can alter God's state. And if, if God were to have, I don't know, a heart, and if God were to see suffering and be moved by that suffering, or if God were to see injustice and be moved by that injustice, then somehow that would make, here's a great way to remember impassibility. Just imagine emotions coming at God and Gandalf is there going, you shall not pass. Like that's sort of the idea. God can't feel anything. And if that's your idea, 
that God is unmoved and unaffected by the struggle and suffering of the world, then we might actually end up approaching the world in the same way, right? If my God isn't moved by the suffering, by, the, by, by hunger, by uh, unnecessary disease that could be prevented if people had access to medication and healthcare, if our God doesn't care, then why do we care? And you see this all the time. Right when people who look at the pain of the world and are, but I'm okay, and and I'm just trying to be like like my my God is a self-centered, self-focused deity, and I am a self-centered, self-focused human being, completely and totally. If it isn't me and affecting me, I'm out. Right? If that's our image of God, that's that's how we can end up. But if our image of God is that of a generous, compassionate, merciful kind, good, if we wanted to sum it up with a word, love, if that's our image of God, then those things begin to permeate our lives. And and just like the hostility and indifference might, if we see God as love and that God's primary motivation toward the world is one of love, if we see God as kind and compassionate, I mean, think about it. If you, if you are at home and you're making a French press of coffee or you're steeping some tea, what do you do when you put the tea bags in or you put the coffee grains in? Gra- is it called grains? Is- grounds. Thank you. Thank you. Um, words sometimes become difficult. You put those in and you, you, you let it just sit in the water and it sort of permeates everything. That's what your image of God does to you. How, how we see God shapes and transforms how we show up in the world. So I think it's a really important question to ask. How did Jesus see God? As best we can sort of reconstruct his, from the gospels, from, from scripture, from tradition, how can we best see how Jesus understood God? And I'll, I'll say this, due, due to a lack of contextual understanding, I, I think a lot of times we have attributed things to God that actually God would want nothing to do with. And here's what I mean. Um, if, when we read stories in the New Testament, Jesus tells, like the parable of the talents, where in this particular story from Matthew 25, you have this, this master who is, who is stingy and hateful, and he takes what he didn't plant, and he, he's just not a good person. And we have, for generations, read that story as if that's the God character in the story. And if you think that's what God is like, then you have license to do all that. I, I think, and, and I don't think that's what God is like. I, I think that character in that story is actually talking about Caesar or Herod, not God. But when you've been taught to read the Bible with a non-contextual understanding, what we have done for maybe thousands of years is we've said anything that remotely looks like us or something we might want, then we're gonna place that onto God. And, and we're gonna say that that's what God is like. When we engage with the text in context, a picture of God emerges that I, I think really inspired how Jesus showed up in the world. And I want to begin with this. I think Jesus understood God as an experienced reality. And what I mean is, God for Jesus was not a doctrinal position. For Jesus, God wasn't a, a bit of theological, you know, uh, belief. For Jesus, God was a reality that he experienced. God wasn't detached and distant and somewhere else. For Jesus, God was as close as breath, as close as the air that encircles him. 
There's this great story um, at the, from the beginning of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. And actually, when we meet Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he's a grown-up, and he's coming to the wilderness to be baptized by John. In Mark 1, it says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he, he's affiliating with John's movement early on. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. It seems like Jesus had this understanding that God was with him. But God wasn't somewhere else and we need to do all the right things, turn all the knobs in the right direction, get everything lined up right, and then God will show up and be with me. For Jesus, God was a reality that he lived with and embodied and experienced in life. And perhaps this is where, as, as a religion, the Christian church really went off track, and that is we made everything about having the right theology, as if anybody knows what that really is. I mean, if I were to say, how many of us think we have the right theology? I bet every hand, if we were, let's pretend like you're not trying to be humble. Like, yeah, probably, but who knows? Right? This idea that the most important thing about our faith is that we get all the beliefs right when we do not have an answer book that gives us all the right beliefs. I don't think that's how Jesus approached his relationship with the divine. I think Jesus approached his relationship with the divine as if God were here and could be experienced. Second, I think from Jesus' experiences, he began to believe that God cares a lot about justice. Now, I think it's important to say, I, I grew up hearing God is love, but God also cares about justice, which means if you don't love God back, God's going to torture you. That doesn't sound very loving. But, but here's what I will say. I believe that God is love, and because God is love, Cornel West said that justice is what love looks like in public. Then God has to care about injustice and suffering. Now, I think the way God cares about that is way different than we would. I don't think God is retributive. I don't think God is vengeful. I don't think God is looking to pay people back. I don't think God needs people to suffer and be tortured forever to teach them a lesson. I think God's justice is restorative. I think it's healing. I think it's, it's inviting people to come into a better way of being human. Because there, I actually would say it's inviting people to be human. Our problem is not our humanity. Our problem is that so often we live beneath our humanity and the way we treat one another and interact in the world. Jesus' understanding of God was grounded in the idea that God cares about justice being done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus was a part of a group that this mattered for. Jesus was a part of a group of people who had, for as far back as they can recall, had known constant oppression for generation after generation after generation. It began with enslavement in Egypt, but then after that liberation, there was a brief period of time, but then there were one empire after another that came through and conquered their land and controlled their lives and used their fields and used their produce and, and essentially took everything they could from them. Jesus knew what it was like to long for justice. He knew what that prayer felt like. It was, how long, God? In Jesus' day, it was, how long are the Romans going to control our lives, enrich themselves while impoverishing us, 
How long? It's worth noting that in Jesus' world, historians say the economy was rigged so drastically in favor of the wealthiest in society. Aren't you glad that that's all changed (laughs) in 2,000 years? We've come so far, haven't we? We figured it out, but back then they couldn't. Roughly one to 2% of the people in Jesus' world were wealthy elites, and by some estimates, they controlled over half the land. In an agrarian society, controlling the land meant controlling the economy. It meant controlling who could do what, who made what. It meant controlling everything about a person's life. So think with me in Matthew chapter six, where Jesus is talking to his followers. And he says this, don't worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're gonna eat or drink or what you're gonna wear. God feeds the birds and makes the lilies grow beautifully. And if that's true, if God loves the birds and God loves the flowers, then God loves you and God is going to take care of you. But notice what he says after that. How many of you have been told not to worry and you've been made to feel really shamed by that, that text? Well, Jesus said, don't worry. Like God cares for the birds. You're, you're kind of cooler than a bird. All they can do that you can't is fly and make nests. I mean, you could probably do that, but they know how to do it better, right? But come on, if God cares about birds and flowers, surely you're worrying. That's, that's just, it's unbiblical. You're being, you're being unbiblical. But I want you to notice what Jesus follows that with. Don't worry. And then he says in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry, seek first the kingdom and seek God's righteousness and all those other things will come with it. Now, first of all, there's a problem with the way almost every single translation of the Bible translates this. They translate this word righteousness. And when we hear the word righteousness, I bet the first thing that pops in my mind, I know what pops in my mind, I bet the first thing that pops in yours is like being morally upright, right? If a person, unless you grew up in the 80s and watched the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, then righteous meant like cool. But I don't think Jesus is saying, seek the kingdom and be cool. You know, like, it's like Jesus channeling the fawns or something. I don't think that's what's happening here. And it actually doesn't mean morally upright in the same way we would understand it. What the word actually means, it's this word, dikaiosune, it actually means justice. Think about how differently that reads. Don't worry about all that. Seek God's kingdom and God's justice and then you'll have everything you need. Now, how can Jesus make that claim? What is God's kingdom like? And what is God's justice like? God's justice means enough for everyone. If God's kingdom had come on earth as it is in heaven, if God's justice were being done on earth as it is in heaven, nobody would be hungry. No one would be unhoused. One to 2% of the people wouldn't own almost all the land. It would be a just and generous society where everybody had what they needed. See, what Jesus is saying, he's not saying, oh, you're, you're, you're a sinner to worry. He's saying, you could spend all your time worrying or you could spend your time seeking to bring this world into existence where all the things you're worried about will be taken care of. Jesus has this understanding of God that isn't in this idea of the kingdom, that isn't some otherworldly place that becomes accessible when we die. 
but a reality for this world that brings a challenge to the way the politics and economics of empire have divided up the world. You do not execute someone for saying, seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness and someday you'll go to heaven when you die. The empire kills people for saying things like, seek God's kingdom and God's justice and transform radically the way life on earth works. It's very, very different. And if you think about it, we have spent a lot of time and energy minimizing this piece of Jesus's message in the Christian church. I was listening to a podcast, uh, Bart Ehrman, a scholar, has a podcast called Misquoting Jesus. And here's what he said this past week. Throughout the Christian tradition, when people disagree with something Jesus said, they just make him say something else. Right? I mean, think about it. When, when Jesus tells the rich ruler, go get rid of all your stuff and then follow me. Nobody's like, you know what? I think Jesus is saying that to me. Literalists get really non-literal when they're trying to hang on to their wealth. Right? People who, everything in the Bible is literal. Well, Jesus says, give away all your stuff and pluck out your eye. Well, that part's not literal. Just the part that's literal is in the book of Revelation with the dragon. <laughs> right? When, when, when Jesus bumps up, it's just, it's amazing how Jesus has been turned into a capitalist and a white dude <laughs> and a misogynist. It's amazing how we morph and transform Jesus rather than actually listen to the challenge of Jesus and decide what we're being invited to do with it. Here's what I'll say for the rich ruler in the stories in the gospels. Like he got it. He just didn't want it. He walked away because it was a challenging invitation. I think Jesus saw God as being deeply concerned about the suffering of human beings. Jesus understood the God of the Exodus. I have heard the cry of the oppressed and enslaved and I'm doing something about it. And I'm going to send a liberator to do something about it. How tragically ironic that the religion that bears the name of Jesus has too often been the perpetrator of injustice rather than the voice in the wilderness calling humanity to create a more just and generous world. So I think Jesus saw God as being a God who cares about justice. And because of that, Jesus saw God as a God who was moved with deep compassion. Jesus understood God to be a compassionate parent, not an indifferent or hostile being toward humans. One of the things I often hear from people when they're, when they're talking about theology that they hold that is really dehumanizing and mean to other people, I, I hear people say something like this. This is not me. This is what God says. If I were making the rules, it would be way different. Now, bear with me. If you and I are more compassionate, kind, loving, forgiving, generous, if we are better than our version of God, it may be time to let that version of God go and take another one up. And that's, thanks, thank both of you. That was, everybody's like, everybody's like, that's not good enough to clap for. It's true. If you're better than God, then maybe our vision of God has been too small. If we are more generous than God, then maybe our vision of God has been too stingy. And it is okay to let go of a vision of the divine or religion that is not serving you well. 
And it's okay to let go of a vision of God that isn't serving the world well. If our understanding of God makes us more hostile after having talked about it, then maybe it's time to open up our hands and say, there must be something better, more expansive, more transformative. There there must be something else out there. In Luke 6, Jesus sums up his understanding of God and our work like this. Be compassionate, just as he used the word father, is compassionate. Be compassionate just as the divine parent is compassionate. Jesus' frame for God was that God looks at the suffering and pain and tragedy of the world, and it makes God feel, and it makes God long to act in the world. And the way God acts in the world is always through people. And you can see Jesus implementing this throughout his ministry, his embrace of those who are at the margins, his breaking of barriers to embrace those who are excluded, his passion and his willingness to give himself away reflect his conviction that God enters into the suffering of the world and is inviting us to join God there. All the things we want to turn our eyes from are the very places God is longing to break into the world and to make meaningful change in the world because God for Jesus is ultimately the source of compassion and an invitation for us to join God, which brings me to the the last thing I want to talk about with Jesus' understanding of God is I think Jesus understood God as a, a reality that was longing for cooperation and collaboration. Jesus did not seem to believe. And this is where, when you, when you think about um, John the baptizer, right, who baptized Jesus, John's message, I think we talked about this a little last week, John's message was very much, God is coming to fix the world. And it seems like at one point, Jesus resonated with that message. He got baptized by John. And then John gets thrown into prison and executed. And when John gets thrown into prison, Jesus launches his ministry. And if you could sort of sum up the difference between the two, John's message is something like, God is going to come and fix the world. And Jesus' message is, God is going to come and fix the world through us. Because God is always looking for partners. This is why Jesus organized his movement like he did, right? This is why instead of being built on, you know, doctrines and dogmas. Jesus' movement was built on the idea of collaboration. We're going to organize ourselves. We're going to share our resources. We're going to embrace those who've been excluded. And in doing so, we're going to show that the kingdom isn't somewhere else waiting to enter the world. We're going to show that the kingdom has been here all along. We just have not had eyes to see it. And maybe more so, we have not had hearts that were open to it. But if we organize ourselves and we begin to live as if it were already here, if we go into the world and embrace those who have been excluded and feed those who are hungry, then maybe this reality will begin to grow and spread and transform. And maybe it'll be slow. And maybe it'll start really small and be unnoticed at times, but it'll happen. Jesus actually told a parable like this. In Mark 4, he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable for it will we use? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. When Jesus wants to describe his work in the world, he says, well, it's kind of like this. I think we have a picture of some mustard seeds. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't look promising, does it? And yet Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is like. As we choose to collaborate with God, we are just planting small seeds of goodness and generosity and compassion 
in pursuit of justice and a dream for what the world could be. And we'll keep planting them and watering them. And the way we do that is through the way we love one another and the way we organize ourselves to work for justice in the world. And over time, what seems small and insignificant doesn't register on the radar will begin to grow and change and transform. I think that's what began to happen. And I think the reason the Roman Empire eventually co-opted the Christian movement in the fourth century is because what Jesus had started was working. I think Jesus offered an alternative to empire, an alternative to the dehumanization of empire. And ultimately it was way easier to co-opt it than it was to defeat it. Because when you start giving human beings their dignity back and you start seeing the image of God in each and every one of them and people start having full bellies and sleeping under stable roofs, they might begin to believe the world could be different. That's why empires would rather spend way more, all of their money on bombs and very little of it on healthcare. Because empires invest in death, and the kingdom of God invests in life. And Jesus saw God as a collaborator in waiting. Christianity has so latched on to the idea of God for us that we actually missed the message all along. It was God with us. God with us in the world. God with us to transform the world. God with us to heal the pain of the world. Jesus' vision of God was an experience, not simply a belief, a passion for justice to be done on earth, a compassionate movement toward the pain of the world. And this trust that God longed to collaborate and cooperate to bring goodness even the world, even if the goodness begins really, really small. I think about this parable and I think about these seeds when I think about our community. We're not a huge community. But you know what's been interesting that's happened over the last few years is we've been trying to figure out how to be a community with each other during a global health crisis pandemic is that we now have grace pointers all over the world who resonate with this vision for what the world could be. And in their own communities and in your community and my community where we, where we live, we are planting little mustard seeds, watering them, and trusting and hoping that someday we will begin to see those seeds grow and that the world can ultimately be transformed. Think of the state of the world, the song we just sang before I came up, Love Anyway. Love Anyway. It seems like that's the thing Jesus was doing in the face of dehumanization and brutalization. He was seeking to create a movement that would love and value and embrace and celebrate the dignity and beauty of every single human life. And I think that is first and foremost what we are called to do in the world. Somebody asked the other day, what is the gospel? How would you define it? One sentence. The gospel is human flourishing. The gospel is human flourishing. And we can preach doctrine and dogma and our 10 theological points that'll get you to heaven when you die and it will not transform the world. But human beings being transformed and flourishing will transform the world. Mm-hmm.